Welcome, fellow survivors, to another episode of A Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur eschatologist, Richard Oliver. Last episode, we found the Haven Complex, the exclusive tax resort for the super-rich that was supposed to let them live in luxury, but instead killed most of them and their families. This week, the captain decided that we needed some time to relax, so she found a quiet stretch of track in a rather picturesque countryside setting, and we settled in. I was actually relieved. My nerves were getting a little frayed, and I liked my nerves nice and even. With all that has happened in the past few weeks, I had been neglecting some things, and it was good to have this time. I hardly spent any time in the dining car anymore, and I knew my presence would be missed there. No one would have said anything. They're not a talkative bunch, but I knew. Then there was the podcast. It always needs work. Typing up notes, working out the practicalities, trying to improve the audio quality. And there is just me and my assistant, Nox, to do all this work. And in all honesty, I try to keep Nox focused entirely on manual labour, nothing creative or technical. I was also helping Sophia adjust to her new life. She still wanted to be in a 19th century Europe that was ruled by Napoleon, not present-day post-apocalyptic England. Sophia had learned quite a bit about the world, but there were big gaps in her understanding. She didn't know the cause of the apocalypse, that man had walked on the moon, and had only a shaky grasp of electricity. She fumed at the knowledge that in my timeline, Napoleon had died after being defeated in exile to the island of Elba, but she tried to maintain a stoic approach to such distressing news. Finally, I did just want to relax. I had been getting far too involved with things that weren't my business. I was here to produce a podcast, not rescue the super-rich from tax havens, or negotiate with suicidal ghosts. My life kept being put in danger, and I was pretty fed up with that. What was most annoying was that I had often volunteered to be put in these dangerous situations, and I would have to put a stop to that. So I would join my companions in the dining car, work on the podcast, help Sophia, relax, and most importantly of all, not get involved in anything dangerous. At first, everything went according to plan. I spent more time in the dining car, sat in complete silence and ate excellent food. I helped Sophia by explaining her much of the 20th century as we knew it, she got rather excited by the Russian Revolution, but that quickly turned sour. As for the podcast, well, there was a surprising amount of paperwork, and I ploughed my way through it as best I could. And as for relaxing, I had set up a hammock in my carriage, and enjoyed many hours relaxing in it, a glass of brandy in one hand, and a dog-eared copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the other. That all changed on the fourth day, when our quiet holiday was interrupted. It was late in the evening when the attack came. We thought we were completely alone and were proven very wrong. The first sign of a problem was the rather unusual popping sound, which I later learned was the sound of tracks being ripped out of the ground around the train. I had heard each distinct pop, wondering what it could be, but not being overly concerned. What happened next was more troubling. The power went off. If there is one thing that can be relied on on this train, it is an abundance of electricity. The nuclear reactor that powers the train generates enough power for a small city. Before I could do anything, the windows of my carriage exploded. Although I did get a few cuts, I was lucky not to be seriously injured. I fell out of the hammock and lay still for a moment, but wasn't surprised by the sudden sound of gunfire. I went to the window to look out at what was happening and would have been impaled on a metal rod that was fired through the window had Colt not pulled me back. Stay down, he ordered. 
I looked at the three foot metal rod that was now stuck in the wall of the carriage behind me and dreaded to think what it would have done to me. Clear voice called out. Give us Oliver. Colt looked at me and shook his head. He mumbled something along the lines of over his dead body. Colt had his revolver in his hand and peered ever so slightly out of the window and then stepped forward firing three times. I couldn't see what happened but Colt swore loudly and moved back from the window. What's going on I demanded. I could hear bursts of gunfire, sounds of fighting and screams throughout the train. Colt grabbed me by my collar and pushed me towards the door. Go, get somewhere safe. As he said this, an intense beam of red light burst through one of the windows, burning everything it touched. Not knowing what else to do, I dove through the door, hoping that I would find myself in a better situation. The next carriage held several compartments, and I rushed past them just trying to get further away from the sounds of fighting. I heard several gunshots ahead of me, and I stopped dead, not knowing what to do or where to go. The door ahead of me opened, and a woman stepped through it. She was covered in blood but not her blood. She had huge, sharp teeth and long talons. My eyes locked on hers and I could tell as her expression changed that she realised who I was. I slowly walked backwards, convinced that if I turned away from her, she would rush me. She matched my movements. There was something very animalistic about the woman, not just her teeth and claws, but the way she moved and her inhuman eyes. I finally hit the door back to my carriage and closed my eyes, waiting for the end. The door behind me was flung open and a gun went off by my head. I dropped to the ground, hands over my ringing ears. Colt paced into the carriage, gun trained on the woman. The bullet had struck her in the shoulder, but she was still standing. Colt fired again, hitting her in the stomach, but still she stayed up. To Colt, that shouldn't have been possible. His gun was very powerful and one bullet, even if it missed vital organs, would have been a huge shock to the system. The woman rushed forward and Colt fired in the nick of time. The bullet hit her in the chest and finally knocked her down, but she was still alive. Colt stood over the woman and pulled the trigger. The gun clicked and nothing happened. Colt swore and holstered his weapon. I have mentioned in the past that if someone wanders off on the train and gets lost or captured, even killed, we might not do much about it. It's an accepted risk of being on the train. However, if some maniac demands us to hand over some people to them, we come together and refuse. It's surprising how often this comes up, and there's always been complete solidarity. Just, it's never been me that they wanted. I need to get to the armory, or my compartment, Colt said. His compartment was practically a second armory, with a lot of guns and plentiful ammunition. If I didn't know Colt, I would have found his compartment unsettling, the sort of place a gun-crazed maniac might live in. From my carriage came a horrible screeching of metal. Colt pushed me in the other direction. We kept moving, the sounds of fighting never too far away. We reached Colt's compartment and they flung the door open. We stepped inside and Colt quickly reloaded his gun, as well as picking up two smaller pistols and a shotgun. Take this, said Colt, holding out one of the pistols to me. I shook my head. I'm not good with guns. Colt rolled his eyes in frustration. We stepped back outside. The sound of screeching metal came again and I looked at the door to the carriage we had just left. It seemed to be shaking, then small dents appeared, and with a great creak, the door was flung forward, knocking me down. A young man stood in the doorway, and he advanced on me. As he reached the compartment, Colt fired the shotgun from inside. The shot hovered an inch from the man, and then fell harmlessly to the ground. 
Cultivating even tried to fire again and rushed forward, crashing into the man, and they struggled. The man showered that he had found me. I crawled out from under the door and I pulled myself up. Logan and the man were fighting and I was about to help my friend when a woman appeared between us. It's hard to explain but there was a moment of odd electricity in the air and then a bright red ball of energy appeared and expanded to be replaced by a woman. When she materialised I was pushed back by some force and fell to the ground. The woman reached out and grabbed my hand. Close your eyes, she said. And then we were gone. Correspondence The first question has been asked by a few people, and I thought I would answer it here rather than responding to individuals. At the start of every episode, I refer to myself as an amateur eschatologist, and people want me to explain what that is. Some people have asked if I am an escapologist or an archaeologist. I am not seeing either of these. Eschatology is the study of the end of the world, usually in a religious sense, but I like the word and thought it summed up nicely what I do. Next, Matteo from Verona asks, What is the most dangerous monster you've ever encountered? I know a lot of people would give the answer as mankind, but I've come across creatures with the worst traits of humanity and can also fly or turn invisible, so they're automatically worse. The ones that I found most scary were the genetically engineered super mosquitoes that had been created to suck all the blood out of a person and then return to their creator. When I was seeing North America by airship, we spent weeks being attacked by them. Much smaller than normal mosquitoes, the only one you got that they were near was a quiet buzzing noise. While normally they travelled in huge swarms of hundreds, even a single mosquito can kill a man and drain him of blood. I can assure you after weeks of being afraid to fall asleep because of these blood-sucking parasites, I had been close to breaking point. As we never found out who or what created the mosquitoes, we never knew what they wanted to do with all this blood. Finally for this week, Jira asks, What do you miss most about life before the apocalypse? Well Jira, I was very young when the apocalypse started, so there are a lot of things that I never got to experience. But one thing that I do remember was there was a basic feeling that everything was going to be okay for most people most of the time. Perhaps this is just something that was only true for certain people in certain places, but I now feel that we all live with the knowledge that something else horrific is going to happen in the very near future or is actually going on right now, and we just don't realise it. Oh, and I really miss Polo Mints. Back to the narrative. The next hour or so was unlike anything I had ever experienced. I felt like I had been ripped apart and then stuck back together, but not quite in the right way, as if my organs had been moved a centimetre or two inside me. But that was only the beginning. I couldn't do anything other than lie on the ground, Occasionally I tried to give orders to my limbs, but they had mutinied and no longer recognised my authority. Everything in my brain was a scramble. Sensations, memories, emotions, all were jumbled together. It took me a little while to realise what had happened. I had been teleported. I didn't like it. The one saving grace was that the woman who had done this to me seemed to be in even worse shape. When I finally got control back over my mind and body, I managed to stand up. What did you do to me? I asked her. The woman was lying on the ground, her eyes closed. I teleported you. Lie down and keep your eyes closed. It'll help. I feel horrific, I said. I feel like I've been put together wrong. That's certainly possible, she said. Do you know the calculations I have to do to make that work? You're lucky I got all your organs inside you. The woman was younger than me, maybe born after the beginning of the apocalypse. 
tall, with red hair. What was more striking about her, though, was the patchwork of red veins that I could see clearly on her skin. They did not look healthy at all. Well, thank you for that, I said sarcastically. Oh, and because of that little trip, your chances of developing stomach cancer in the next five years have went up 200%, she said, presumably seriously. Before I could give voice to my anger, someone spoke first. Don't worry about that, it said. We're just going to kill you anyway. I turned round. It was the man who had stopped bullets and had ripped doors apart with the powers of his mind. I looked round the room. The woman called had managed to shoot was there, as well as an assortment of people I had presumed were similarly talented. While this was an impressive bunch, they were hardly unique, and I had met a number of people like them. And frankly, I liked those other people more. They had not kidnapped me or threatened my life. My captors had taken residence in what looked like a hospital, but one that was in urgent need of maintenance, as it looked more like a ramshackle torture chamber than a place of healing. It did occur to me that there might have been a hospital and a torture chamber, and that this group perhaps had a long association with this place. After all, their powers had to come from somewhere. There are numerous ways that people have developed superpowers. Scientific experiments gone wrong, exposure to toxic waste, nuclear fallout. For some, they just happened, as if the apocalypse activated something in them. This group were like the others I had met in that their powers seemed to be taking a terrible toll on them. If one teleportation had raised my odds of getting cancer, what had it done to the woman who had done it many times? The woman who Cole had shot with the claws and fangs. Well, she didn't look at all comfortable with these more animalistic parts of her. Her mouth seemed to be bursting with teeth and I wondered how she managed to talk. Despite being shot on the shoulder, she seemed to be doing very well. I was mildly curious as to which one had fired laser beams into my carriage, but introductions were made. The teleporter was named Nancy, the woman with the claws, Falvey, the one who could manipulate metal, and not all objects as I originally thought, was Juan, and the one who had fired laser beams with his eyes, with his eyes for God's sake, was Lucas. There were others, and while Juan did tell me their names, I had trouble concentrating. His threat was taking up most of my mind. So I asked him why. Why did they want me? It wasn't Juan who explained, but Nancy, once she had recovered. They were, without a doubt, the most powerful group of superpowered people ever assembled, and they were not brought together to save the world, fight crime, or help anyone. Well, only help themselves. Statistically, the strength of their powers put them in the top 1% of their kind. Amongst those with superpowers, they were still special. The handful of people with superpowers who had been able to do something worthwhile with them had relatively weak powers, and as such they were far easier to control. For this group, there was no learning to control their powers. They would forever be incredibly dangerous to themselves and those around them. All of them bore the scores of their powers. Nancy's power had destroyed her body by teleporting so many times. Each time it took more out of her. Juan's power had led to metallic objects, sometimes as big as cars, flying towards him, and I could see vicious scars on him, as well as evidence of poorly set broken bones. If that wasn't bad enough, something about his magnetism made him feel constantly ill, and he was barely able to eat. Lucas was not only blind, but in constant pain. The shockingly common red veins crisscrossed his face. Not surprisingly, firing lasers from your eyes is really bad for them. Falvey's enhanced strength, agility, resilience and healing were useful, but not only did the claws and fangs make doing any normal activity incredibly difficult, she suffered from terrible tremors in her limbs, 
sometimes unable to exercise proper control for hours at a time. Falvey was perhaps the one who had suffered most. Her powers were strong enough to let her heal from almost any injury. In fact, cold shooting her had barely phased her. The problem was, Nancy explained, when it's almost impossible to kill you, people get creative. Some people begin to see it as a challenge, a personal test of their own homicidal skills. So far, Falvey had survived everything that had been thrown at her. Nancy rattled off more and more powers and the agony they had caused each individual. It was difficult to hear. They had come to England for the promise of treatment, the chance to lose those powers. I'm sure you are expecting me to say that it was a trap by evil scientists to take control of these poor, unsuspecting people. But it wasn't. Not at first, anyway. It started as a genuine quest to remove their powers. But after that proved exceedingly difficult, they moved on to other, arguably more lucrative plans. The rebellion of the superpowered individuals that inevitably followed was a complete success in destroying their oppressors, but left them in the same position they had been at the start of their troubles. They had deigned to remain in England and live out their lives with people like them, in relative anonymity and peace. They did, however, swear unrelenting vengeance against anyone who tried to use any of them. I explained that they had my sympathy, but I still didn't see what had to do with me. McIntyre, Nancy said finally. What did you do with Jacob McIntyre? For those who don't remember, McIntyre was the health and safety minded superhero we encountered in a neo-Victorian city. After arranging an interview with me, McIntyre had vanished. I had presumed that he had finally been captured by the city's authorities who had been hunting him for years. I took from Nancy's question that McIntyre had once been part of their community, and that did go somewhere to explain in his extraordinary success. He left us, Nancy said. He actually thought he could do some good, and he was naive enough to trust you. I tried to explain that I had no part in whatever had happened to McIntyre. That yes, it was true he had been taken after arranging to meet with me. That moments after our meeting began, we had been attacked, and when we awoke, McIntyre was gone. And that yes, McIntyre had avoided capture for years, only to be caught hours after our train arrived. But I really didn't have anything to do with it. It didn't sound convincing even to me. And then it got very odd, as Nancy began relaying many of our adventures on this island, but casting them in a very different light. How we spent our time capturing monsters, stealing technology, and destroying cities all for our own profit, with me being at best a smiling apologist and more likely a central part of this plan. I am quite an easygoing person and can take all manner of insults without getting upset, but to suggest I am governed by a love of money was going too far. The normally tight control I keep on my emotions crumbled and I demanded an apology. When Juan said that their plan was still to kill me, I pointed out that they could kill me, but I wouldn't have anyone thinking it was down to my avarice. I had always imagined my death being caused by my incompetence, my laziness, or one of my borderline addictions. This curious argument seemed to give Nancy a moment to think about what was going on. The others had decided I would be no help in finding McIntyre, and were trying to agree on a method of execution. Falvey suggested I'd be jugulated with her own claws, while Juan had a party trick of killing a man with a bullet but not using a gun that he wanted to dust off. Juan had gone so far as to find a bullet when Nancy stopped him. But if it wasn't you, the only other person was Cooper, the social media consultant from the Wade Adler Company, she said. So was she responsible? I set about a long and rambling answer, stating how I had no evidence of their involvement and held them in the highest regard, and all the awful, awful rumours about them were not true, but stuff and nonsense. 
Yes, it had actually been Cooper who had set the interview up, but I tried to explain that Elizabeth, Lizzie Cooper, was just a social media consultant, not a killer, not a Machiavellian evil genius, but it didn't work. It seemed that these people were quite familiar with the company themselves, and Nancy became convinced that I wasn't the manipulative mastermind driven by an insatiable lust for gold and power. I hoped that this meant we could just forget my kidnapping and move on to a more productive solution, but that wasn't how they saw it. They had all sworn an oath, and they would keep it. They were going to attack the away Adler company, which essentially meant they were going to attack the train. I begged them to reconsider, and I tried to frighten them with the hideous power the company wielded, but they seemed perfectly happy to lose their lives in the attack. They numbered 42 in total, and while some of them had terribly destructive powers that would be extremely useful in the coming fight, many of them had relatively benign gifts, but they were united. While revenge for McIntyre was their main motivation, all of them were convinced the company would be coming for them sooner or later, and they'd rather fight them on their own terms. Nancy prepared to teleport all of them together, something that would do terrible harm to her, and could even kill her. Juan was still pushing to kill me anyway, but Nancy said no. Once we're gone, head southeast, in about 30 minutes you'll reach the train, she said. Then in a blinding flash of red light, they were gone. The following is a message from the Librarian Alliance. Like reading, like books, like building a repository of knowledge and culture that will benefit countless generations, why not join the Library Alliance? Since the start of the apocalypse, dedicated individuals have saved and collected books, music, art, and more to preserve our culture and foster a spirit of learning. With England being declared post-apocalyptic, we are looking for organised and helpful people who will be willing to fight book-burning mobs, resist government censorship, and ensure fines are issued and collected for overdue books. Duties will include cataloguing books, light clerical work, and some gentle heroism. 99% of your time will be spent on typical library work. The remaining 1% will be slightly more adventurous. We hope to reach the stage where a librarian's job will not have any death-defying elements to it, but we're not there yet. Training, date stamps and shotguns will be provided by the Librarian Alliance. These jobs are not for the faint of heart, nor are they for people who seek riches or glory aside from the warm feeling of contributing to the collective knowledge and understanding of the human race. Those interested should contact their local branch of the Librarian Alliance, and remember, libraries aren't just for saving the culture of mankind, they're an everyday essential for each and every community. I ran from the hospital and spent 10 minutes trying to work out which way was southeast. I might have stayed there forever had the sounds of gunfire not drifted towards me and I ran after the sound. It may have taken Nancy 30 minutes to reach the train, but a borderline alcoholic podcaster with an aversion to all forms of exercise was a good deal slower. I ran across the uneven terrain, the sounds of battle growing ever louder. I wasn't quite sure what I could do, but I ran anyway. When I finally arrived, it was all over. The superpowered people were all dead or dying, and while they had done a great deal of damage, it had been little more than a suicide mission. The train had been waiting for this attack, and had made careful preparations. The teleportation had been a bit of a surprise, but they had quickly rallied. A dozen feet ahead of me, I saw Juan crawling away from the train. He was covered in blood and looked on the verge of death. Stalking behind him was Elizabeth, 
Lizzie Cooper, the social media consultant for the Wade Adler Company and one of their few employees on board. But the old Lizzie Cooper, who had been an energetic bouncing ball of optimism and on-brand enthusiasm, was gone, replaced by an imposing woman wearing Kevlar body armor and carrying a dangerous-looking handgun. She reached Juan and kicked him hard in the stomach, knocking him onto his back. She pointed the gun at him and fired. With seemingly his last burst of energy, the bullet froze in mid-air, and then it was propelled backwards towards Lizzie. The bullet grazed her cheek, and she gasped in shock and pain, before emptying the clip into Juan. Stop! I shouted. Cooper snapped round, reloading very quickly she levelled the pistol at me. She took quick, panicked breaths, and her finger rested on the trigger, and for a second I thought she would shoot me, and then it passed. Oliver, she said, and lowered the gun. She apologised, but sounded a bit numb, like maybe she was in shock, which was understandable. Not only had she shot someone, she had nearly been killed herself, and by her own bullet. I searched for Nancy and found her far away from the fighting. She was dead, but she hadn't been injured. I guess she had died from the exertion of teleporting that many people. I looked back at the train. Most of the damage had been directed to the three carriages that Lizzie Cooper and the Wade Adler Company had, but they had held up surprisingly well especially the middle carriage. It seemed that neither Lucas's laser beams or Juan's metal manipulation had actually managed to get through the walls of the carriage. Ugly black scorch marks covered its surface and some of the metal was twisted, but it remained intact. While people sought medical treatment for their injuries and repairs were being made to the tracks that had been damaged in the fighting, I went to examine my carriage. It was in pretty bad shape. The metal was distorted and warped. In one place it looked like the carriage had been peeled open. On the walls were the scorch marks left by Lucas's laser eyes. But most of my possessions actually seemed to be okay, which was something of a relief. Although I had lost a couple of bottles of wine which I had been saving. It had been a difficult day, and despite them kidnapping me, threatening my life, and then attacking the train, I did have some sympathy with them. They were people who had been victimised too often, and just about everyone they had met had tried to use their powers for their own purposes powers that they were desperate to lose. But they had reminded me of McIntyre. What had happened to him? Was it my fault? I wandered outside the train, still amazed by the damage that had been done. The captain had ordered the superpower people to be buried, and the crew were getting on with it. I overheard one of the soldiers giving orders to her comrades, breaking them into four teams who would dig ten graves each, apart from her own team who would dig eleven. I stopped when I heard this and looked at the bodies of the dead, and I performed my own count. 41. Someone was missing, and I knew who it was. Falvey. Perhaps it shouldn't have come as a surprise. After all, Nancy had explained that she was almost impossible to kill. So where was she now? It was hard to imagine her abandoning her friends. But what other explanation was there? I leave it there for this week, with a lot of work needing to be done to the train. Hopefully next week things will go a little smoother. At the end of the line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostApoc Podcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. Today's advice is Remember, hope can set you free, but in a very real way, so will a hacksaw, a shiv, and a rope ladder.